<laughs> that was good. Yeah, you guys should do it if you're going to do it. Good morning to everyone. It's good to see you guys here. Uh, another Sunday morning service at El Paso Bible Church. And I uh, have a bulletin in front of me, and I'm just going to go over some of the main events. Uh, we have a church lunch, as we do every most every month, uh, September the 17th, following our worship service. And we've been having our, our luncheons in the new building. So if you haven't had a chance to stay, I'd encourage you to stay for that. Um, bring a little dish, if, if you would, to share with uh, the people or a dessert. And uh, so also women's Bible study, it's beginning September the 12th at 9.30. That is the morning study here at the church. And we also have, uh, we do not have a PM Bible study yet. I thought that was on the, on the, on the bulletin last week for some reason. I was looking at something else probably. Uh, there's usually two women's Bible studies in the PM right now, right? Okay. Um, in that same category of women treat coming up, October the 6th through the 9th, you can sign up for that in the lobby. And uh, uh, so look out for that as well. Just a regular ongoing Bible study every Sunday except for today. Uh, but there is youth group every Sunday at 6 p.m. <laughs> Kids are having fun with it, but we're talking about homosexual and to humanity as a whole. Uh, so let's come to it. But if you don't, uh, your young adults Bible study. Um, I thought it was on. Here, so if, you're, if you've been showing up in the door, that information in. <laughs> yeah, it's Sundays at 6 p.m. and it's in. Uh, so everything, uh, there is a care ministry there. It's over that, that section. But if, if uh, you have prayer requests, to pray about, uh, take advantage of uh, just share your prayer request by Eamton uh, or uh, called prayer group or something. Get other people, other believers to pray for that. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, uh, if you want to go ahead and look for that uh, offering box there towards the back of this. Um, if you'd like to donate to Bible Church, you could also, you could, or um, you can on the website. Don't quote me on that. So Matthew chapter 5, when they revile and persecute you, kinds of evil against you falsely for my, just one verse. We are thankful this morning for the body and worship you, you know, of your word. And, uh, Lord, we ask that uh, singing and considering your word because it's our lives. Praising your son down with us, church, and we'll, we'll sing.
final step Gonna sing this song to my final breath Let this weight of this world go Gonna be no tears, gonna be no pain When I see that smile on my Savior's face
I guess I've misunderstood my whole life what Labor Day meant, because when I was a kid growing up, that just meant we worked twice as hard <laughs> and twice as long on Labor Day. Uh, but I hope that you're celebrating and getting a rest uh, this weekend. Thank you for uh, coming to worship with us this morning. Uh, children, you guys can go to Children's Church if that's what you're doing today. Shortly here, we're going to have our ducks in a row and, uh, and be transitioning our location for a couple of things. Um, to the new building, but we have just a couple of details that we got to figure out as far as movements and, you know, keeping track of children as they move back and forth and that kind of thing. So be prepared, that is coming, uh, but not today. So go ahead and open up in your Bibles uh, to First Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're going to cover a couple more uh, verses here. Remember that we are talking in terms of the church, who we are, our identity in the world. That's where we started, that we are, we are choice aliens. We have a special purpose, and part of achieving that special purpose is knowing that we should expect really no, no consideration from the structures of the world, right? That's, we have no rights. We okay with the lights there, guys? Good thing I'm, I don't suffer from epilepsy or something, or I'd be, I'd be in trouble, I think. We all, are we static now? Are we okay? All right. So we're aliens, right? We, have, we, we really, it's necessary for us to do that. It's necessary for us to make a mental demarcation. You know, demarcation is, it's a line, a distinct line, right? You have a line between your understanding of who you are and what you expect from the world, the world's systems, the world's governments. Um, it really, really wreaks havoc with us achieving our purpose when we misunderstand what our obligation is to the nations of the world and how we're supposed to affect change and achieve our purpose. Um, it, there are many, many people that are focused on transforming and transitioning the wicked and evil governments of the world, including our own. Don't waste your time. Vote how you need to vote. Be involved as you can. Give your righteous input. But your expectations need to be moderated by the reality of our identity, that is that we are aliens here. And we have a purpose. And we must understand that. We need to understand our identity, our future, our obligations, the benefits of who we are, that God empowers us for our purpose, uh, that we have obligations to each other, that are ob we have obligations of knowledge, right? We're supposed to know, to long for, uh, and to know what the Word says about how we're supposed to treat each other. We're supposed to love each other from the heart. Those two things go together uh, inextricably. They are inextricably linked. You cannot love somebody without knowing Scripture because otherwise you will start loving people the way the world does, and that's cheap chicken baloney. That is a charade of what love is. Love can look an awful lot like confrontation, correction, rebuke, exhortation for the benefit of another. We're obligated to love one another according, from the heart, according to our longing for the Word and our understanding of the Word. Doing what is right, doing what is right, keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the nations, I would rather say, among the nations. That 
It's a better description of how the church operates. And again, we're not, we are not a nation. We're not a nation. We're not going to be a nation. We shouldn't try to be a nation. We are dispersed among the nations. So he says, in that dispersal, keep your behavior excellent, and you will suffer for it, for doing what is right. Maybe not all the time, but it shouldn't be unanticipated. And he says specifically that when you suffer for doing what is right, remember he used examples of Jesus and of Noah, right, in case Jesus is not a, you know, think that it's ridiculous to use Jesus as the example of, of suffering for doing what is right. But he says if you suffer for doing what is right, that's better. That is better all the time. Even if it costs you your life, even if you suffer more than any other man like Jesus did, or you suffer really harshly for a, you know, a century and a fifth, which is what Noah did as a preacher of righteousness among his generation. Suffering for doing what is right is better. And we're going we're to talk about how that is true today. But there was some more material, right? He says, you're suffering for doing what is right. It is better. Baptism now saves you. In other words, now those who are suffering for doing what is right know who you are. They know your testimony. They rely upon you. And now you are saved from suffering in isolation and in loneliness. Baptism saves us. It saves us. Keeping our behavior excellent means that we keep our love for one another intact even though we may sin even ignorantly against each other. This is something in a local body that you have to comprehend, apprehend, understand. You need to learn it, apprehend. You need to understand it, comprehend it. That love covers a multitude of sins. And we talked about that. That means that we, because of our love for each other, we do not allow the sins that are committed against each other to build an obstacle in our relationship, we anticipate that that will happen and we give people the benefit of the doubt when it does happen. Most of the sins, I will say, that I have observed as a pastor over one form or another 20 years now have been unintentional. But the divisive responses to those unintentional acts have been very intentional, and that's what breaks a church. So love covers a multitude of sins. That is a central principle to how we're going to operate as a local body if we are to do what God wants us to do. We need it. We need to cover them because we're not going to all be able to systematically eliminate them or deal with them. We keep our behavior excellent. Right, and we talked about how that is important then that we are hospitable to one another. Last week, we talked about how that it means that we stop treating the faithful people that we know really well as less important than the new people. This is very important to me as a pastor. Right? We even have a say familiarity breeds contempt in the world maybe, but it shouldn't breed it in the church. We need to be able to, yes, we need to be kind. We need to be loving, love one another from the heart. We need to be welcoming to new folks, to visitors, to guests, whatever the, the contemporary term is for it. They keep changing it on me. Talk about pastoral cancel culture. If you call people visitors anymore, they look at you like you're a dinosaur. Those people are special. I want you to know, so are y'all. You're special. And we don't want to denigrate that, right? We're keeping our behavior excellent to make sure that there is a balance, right? The, the biblical precedent for church growth and health, right, that we get out of Acts 2 is the fellowship is functional, mature, loving, and the Lord adds daily to their number. That's radically different. That's a radically different picture from me saying, okay, you guys, get in line and we're going to go out with bottles of water and tracks and a strategy and go save the world. 
It's not dependent on us being an evangelistic program. There's nothing wrong. You need to individually and personally be sharing Christ with people. But the Lord adds numbers to a church that functions in a mature, discipling, actually inward-focused way that meets each, other, each other's needs and loves one another after the heart, longs for God's Word, and expects to suffer together for doing what is right. The Lord adds to their number. That was last week. Pretty important concept. We talked about how that's important for expectations. You know, we actually un- involuntarily create kind of a revolving door where people come into a church and they want to hang out for three months while they have their honeymoon period and get treated special and then go to the next one. Part of that is, is because they become invisible after three months or six months or a year. And they don't get treated special. We need to be treating them at an even level, right? So that we have a consistent treatment of people within the local body. So we don't have a revolving door. Uh, I've served a church like that, where the only option for putting people into leadership was people that had only been in a church for a couple of years. That's scary. That's scary. For the average person that's been in a church for two years, you know how many hours that is? About a hundred. About a hundred. Because that's generally the exposure that we get. People that have been in a church for a couple of years. You know how many hours it takes to become an expert at something? What is it, 10,000? And we're going to put somebody that we've only known for a hundred years into a leadership position directing things in a position of trust that scares them, scares me a lot to have to do that, to be put in a position. In fact, I won't do it. I won't. Anyway, we don't want that. We want to keep our behavior excellent. And we're still in that section. You shouldn't be surprised by that. That's what the New Testament is mostly about. The New Testament is mostly about how we treat each other. So verse 12 of chapter 4 says this, Beloved, beloved, I like how the apostles do this. No matter if you're frowning at me or smiling at me after all that introduction, you're beloved. I love you. I'm going to tell you the things that I think the Lord wants me to tell you lovingly, the best way possible, because you're beloved. Beloved. So we're addressing you guys, like Peter was addressing them. Be unsurprised. Do not be surprised, you might say. Be unsurprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So there's the the first imperative. That's the command, right? That's one of those things that I get real frustrated with. Um, Everybody in in pastoral ministry, like, input wants you to stop making commands, I will do that as soon as Scripture stops doing it, right? If Scripture makes a suggestion, sometimes they do. Sometimes the apostles say, this is what I think you ought to do. This is me speaking. I think you ought to do that. Uh, We're not going to get the imperatives out of Scripture. But it's kind of strange, right? Be unsurprised. See, my my older boys, well, my children kind of grew up here, right? Yeah? And some of my older boys, they shall remain nameless, used to hide behind columns in the front porch and scare the snot out of people on purpose. Now, when I would find out about it, because, I mean, literally, I thought I was going to have to get a defibrillator out of that. Sometimes people were having trouble. I could not respond to them and say, you know what, you need to stop being surprised by those little sinners. Be unsurprised by those little sinners out there behind the columns, scaring you half to death or three-fourths to death. It's a strange command. Be unsurprised. Stop being surprised. Don't, and actually it's not thalmazo, like thalmazo is marvel. Oh my goodness, that's an amazing demonstration of power. This word is actually related to the word for stranger. Don't treat that as if you're a stranger to it. Decide today that you are no longer going to consider that a strange sequence of events. Zenidzo. It's related to xenos or xenos. 
Not, not a matter of desensitization alone, right? So now you might be like me. You read the local news. Do you read the local news? Sometimes you're real frustrated with the local news. But lately, I think it's been about three cars every day that have been lighting on fire on I-10. Have you noticed that? I don't read those stories. I'm, I'm desensitized to it. It's terrible. It's terrible. For a while there, I was getting desensitized to stories about single-car rollovers because it happened two or three times a day, four or five times a week at minimum. That's just habituation, desensitization. There was no decision involved in that for me. That's not the same, right? I developed that lack of sensitivity or lack of response to that because of constant and fairly long-term exposure. That's not what this is because this is a command to the whole body. Whether you've been a believer for 20 minutes or 20 years or longer, he says, stop being surprised. So you're going to have to decide to do this because it's not a matter of exposure, right? It's not a matter of long-term exposure to fiery ordeals. We call that a barbecue. Yes? No? You guys come to the Triple B Pig Roast, our annual pig roast, low and slow, constant exposure to the whole pig, right? Pulled pork at the end. With a smile on its face, literally. I always make it smile. But you don't have to be low and slow over 40 years to be able to stand up, to be unsurprised by the fiery ordeal. That can be done today. You trusted Christ yesterday or this morning. The command is for you. New ones, old ones, middle ones, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, pastors, everyone. It's a decision rather than the consequence of a repeated experience. Be unsurprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Now, I had five, well, I have, and none of them died. I have five sons who used to be massive pyromaniacs. Does anybody have a son that's not a pyromaniac? You may want to take him to the doctor. See, because I would come home every single day. You know, you read the scriptural description of Gehenna where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. I almost named my house that when we lived in the hill country because every day I would come home from the office and guess what? The fire was not quenched. My little boys were out there like little pyros burning something every, every day. The smell of smoke never departed my nostril. But they were responsible. I didn't consider that an ordeal. This, this is um, an impressive an impressive event, the fiery ordeal. Recently, we've had a couple of houses burn up uh, in our neighborhood, actually. One fairly recently, one with a big old bee colony in it that Micah had went and dug out of there. That was not a surprise to them, apparently, but it was a surprise to everybody else. We're surprised by that, by the fires that we see like that. But none of us would be surprised if we walked into a smelter and found a fire, right? You know what a smelter is? The thing where they refine metals still to make an alloy. So they know what they're starting with. Scientific process. So they bring it to a certain temperature. They burn off the impurities. Then they know what they're starting with and can make the alloys properly. A lot of fire There's a difference in perspective. That fire has a purpose. It's managed. It's exercised as part of a strategy and as a plan. And I've told you before that we do need to recognize our position in the world. We're choice aliens who have an eternal inheritance that is ready, awaiting, and reserved for us. Which means that we are the immortals in the story. We are the immortals in the story Which means that the fire is not like our house just lit on fire, but more like the smelter. Shouldn't surprise us. It's part of the plan. 
We need to understand the nature of our experience. The fiery ordeal around us is part of God's procedure and plan in fulfilling the purpose for us in the world. We shouldn't treat it as something strange. So like with a lot of things, we need to change our perspective. We need to change our perspective from the very beginning. We need to change our perspective from considering ourselves citizens of a world in which we are aliens. We need to repent of that. We need to repent of the thought that our mortality hinges on the behavior of the world around us. It doesn't. We are immortal by virtue of God's declaration. We need to repent of being surprised by the fiery ordeal around us and understand the purpose. I'm not talking about Peter distinguished it. He said, you know, it's better to suffer for doing what is right. Let none of you suffer for, like a criminal. I will have to say, as your, as your pastor, I will have to disambiguate for you, right? Because Christians are quite capable of having bad things happen in their life because they're stupid and make bad decisions. Being a Christian doesn't actually fix that for you all the time. And you have bad things happen to you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about suffering in a fiery ordeal, ordeal for the sake of Christ, like Jacob read out of Matthew 5. When people revile you, not because you're stupid or evil or bad, but because they revile you because you talk about Jesus or you bear his identity in a world that considers that strange. And when you suffer for it. So that's a distinction we need to keep in mind. We need to repent of being surprised by that. And to change our minds. To change our perspective. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You're testing. It's not testing in the sense of uh, whether you get to go to heaven when you die or not. Right? Testing as in proving. The language there is rewards language. It's to determine whether you receive a prize or not. That's, that's its usage in the New Testament. Um, y'all do understand, right? I disambiguate this probably to the point that y'all get tired of it, but I'm going to do it one more time because you're not tired enough of it. Is eternal life a prize to be won? No. What is it? It's a gift to be received. It was radically expensive for Christ so that it is free for us. So when you read the testing... It is not to prove its genuineness, it is to demonstrate or prove its worth to you, and that's what it is here. It is rewards language. There's other indications of this in the text, and we'll talk about those. But it's hard enough, right, in verse 12. This is, this is a, an opportunity for testing for you. You, you know this intrinsically. We all get, do you like taking tests? You take tests all the time, actually. I think people are testing you in almost every conversation that you have, I think. They don't tell us that. Uh, but tests are opportunities. Yeah. They're opportunities. Um, one of my sons just recently took a battery of tests to get into the fire department academy. Without taking the test, he doesn't have the opportunity. I have a comprehensive exam on the New Testament synthesis coming up uh, in a few weeks. If I don't take the test, I don't have the opportunity. If I don't pass the test, my opportunity to finish my Ph.D. stops cold. 
I have to pass it. We need to understand that tests, when Scripture talks about it, it does not have to do with whether, why would somebody go into a morgue and give somebody a test? At what rate do dead people pass tests? They fail. Universally. Yes? Tell a dead person to take up their number two pencil in their scantron. That's what we used to do. I guess don't do that anymore. You probably take your test on your phone. I don't know. They fail because they can't hold the pencil. You only give tests like this to alive people. It's a test. And it gets harder because initially Peter says to us, be unsurprised by the fiery ordeal around you. And he says something further. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. Another imperative. I'm supposed to manage how surprised I am. I'm still working on that. How do I deal with being unsurprised all the time? How do I be unsurprised? Now I'm supposed to rejoice in the extent or to the degree that I share in the sufferings of Christ. Remember, that's particularly, that's not suffering because you're stupid and make bad decisions. That is suffering particularly because you love one another from the heart, you long for the Word, you understand what it says, you love people biblically, you love Christ biblically, understanding that the demonstration of loving Christ is obedience to Christ, and we suffer for doing what is right. We suffer for doing what is right, which we know is superior than any other alternative. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because it presents opportunity that you can only get that way. If you remain untested, you don't get the opportunity. Just like a lot of the other tests we take. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation when His glory is revealed uh, to us, when we are with Him, when we can see it with our eyes, we behold it. When his glory is revealed. Now, that is a rewards moment, right? Testing says this is a rewards opportunity. This is an opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness in a way that you don't get if you're not tested. And God rewards that. He does not forget. He is not unfaithful, so he doesn't forget our work, Hebrews tells us. He rewards faithfulness in testing. And we know that this is a time frame of rewards. That when he is glorified, when we behold his glory, in order to behold his glory, we too are glorified in him. When we receive an inheritance. Because it's not just, I mean, it'll be wonderful. Yes, to behold his glory. But there is a reason that he says, not only are we going to rejoice, we will all rejoice because the, the fruition of our faith, the glory that we anticipate, the thing that Christ truly is, as First John tells us, that when we are with him, when we see him as he truly is, then we will be like him. His glorious nature will be us. We will behold him. We will rejoice. But he says then, not only that, it's modified. You will rejoice with happiness because it is not only then that you will I mean you will not only just see Jesus for who he is but everything that he has promised will come to us in that moment when his glory is revealed everything it's taught throughout scripture um, one of my 
I didn't really get taught by him personally. One of my favorite Bible teachers, Zane Hodges, would say that the rewards, the Bema seat, is actually referenced on nearly every page of the New Testament. Standing before the judgment seat of Christ, receiving what God has promised, what Christ has promised, it's taught throughout. Romans 8.17 is one of the most clear. Romans 8.17 says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God two different categories, heirs of God that come simply by grace through faith and our identity as children of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. Two inheritances. One We simply possess but haven't experienced yet heirs of God by grace through faith. Fellow heirs with Christ of the glory that he receives because of the work that he did, the reward that he receives because of his absolute perfect submission to the will of the Father in the world. And Paul tells us, like Peter tells us, that if we suffer with him, then we are glorified with him. And that is a moment in time. Our glorification comes to us in Him, in that timing. And this is the good news, right? The testing part comes to an end. That's the nature of testing. Yeah? The nature of testing. We're supposed to be unsurprised by the testing that comes to us in this life the whole time. Don't you get kind of, get kind of tired of it, though, don't you? Often we get tired of the being stupid and making bad decisions part. That's okay. You should get tired of that too. But we fail to distinguish between the suffering. But we get tired. I get tired, you know, of teaching the Bible and thinking people thinking I'm passively, aggressively getting up in their business. That I'm talking, I'm not talking to anybody. Personally, I get that all the time. I wish you would stop preaching to me. I I was preaching to y'all. If i got a problem with you, I'll come talk to you. I hope that you would extend the same courtesy. If you think that, don't be a chicken, a coward. Be valiant, courageous. I'm not actually that scary. I don't think. Our glory comes to us in him. Because one day, thankfully, the testing period comes to an end. Another Bible teacher that I'm familiar with and have grown a lot from his books, Earl Rodmacher, always taught, and you hear it from his, from his disciples a lot, that this life is training time for reigning time. That we reign with Christ, we share in his sufferings, we share in his glory in the day to come. And this is all about that. It's about training Training eventually comes to an end, doesn't it? It does. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, in other words, because of the opportunity, so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation, because the testing is over and now it's time for the reward. Verse 14 tells us what it looks like What does it look like? How do you tell the difference between being stupid and making bad decisions and suffering for Christ? How do you tell the difference? Well, verse 14 tells us at least one case of what it looks like. It says, if you are reviled, not just if you are reviled. Plenty of people revile me. That's okay. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, by the way, that was the context in which people called other people Christians the first time. That was a pejorative. You little Christians, you little hung on the cross guys, you think you're so good, you think you're so awesome, you think you're going to have victory. Well, we hung that Christ on a cross, you little Christ, Christians. It was a pejorative. They reviled people with that name. 
with that title. But if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. That's a declaration. You are blessed. Now, sometimes blessed just simply means happy. I'm not sure that it necessarily means just happy now. If I tell you I hate your guts because of Jesus, I don't necessarily expect your emotive response to be happiness. Not that I would say that as your pastor. I'm just hypothetically, right? But it is, it's structural. It's absolute. It's one of those declarative things. He says, you are blessed. That is evidence of a testing event that you have passed. If somebody hates your guts enough to revile you for the name of Christ, you have engaged the test and you have passed the test. Don't you hate it when you don't get your grades on time? You don't know how you're doing in a class? The longer I go, I'm in like 37th grade now. And I get, the the schedule is fairly intense, like eight weeks, but I don't often get my grade until I'm two weeks into the next class. All of them are prerequisites to each other. I don't know till I'm a fourth of the way through the other class if I can even finish a lot of the times. I hate that. Hate it. So we don't get our final grade till we're in glory before Jesus, but you do get a progress report. Isn't that nice? You get a progress report. If somebody hates your guts for loving Jesus and proclaiming the name of Jesus, that's a progress report. You're blessed. You know you got something on the report card, and God gives no bad rewards, but you get if you're reviled for the name of Christ. That's the distinction. There's a description here. Right, this, is, this is rewards language. I've told you over and over. There's more. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because at that moment, The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's a picture of something, right? The spirit indwells you and I permanently from the moment that we trust in Christ. By grace, through faith alone, the spirit is the seal upon us. He does not leave us. But the picture is that uh, similarly to when the Holy Spirit rested on Christ, right? We need to talk about that. If that's the picture, did Christ's identity change in that moment? No. It was an expression, right? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. It was an expression of God's satisfaction, the father's satisfaction in the son's actions. A clear testimony that he was acting in submission to his father's will. That he passed the test. And Peter says, you have that same moment when you are reviled for the name of Christ. The hatred that is spewed towards you verbally when you are reviled for the name of Christ might as well be, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. That's the picture. Jesus taught something similar. Matthew 5, but also Luke 6. Blessed are you, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Blessed are you. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. That's why you're blessed. It's a reward 
that is provided to you on the basis of faithfulness. Because you pass the test. And you can know. You can know. So we need to adjust our perspective about the fiery ordeal among us, to see it as a test that God has provided for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity with which your word explains our current circumstance, our current experience. We thank you for the opportunities that you lay before us as your children. We thank you for the identity that we have that is irrevocable, from which we cannot be separated. Father, we thank you for the purpose and the meaning you've given us in the days of our lives here. We love you, and we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with this church as we end with a song?